Let's get straight into it because Michael Cunningham won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel The Hours. It was adapted, of course, into a film starring Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore and famously with a prosthetic nose, Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf. It's been a decade since his last novel, but now he's back with Day. It's centred around a family, Isabel and Dan, and their two children. So far, so conventional. But they're both in love with Isabel's brother, Robbie, who lives upstairs at their place. And it's set on a single day in April, across three separate years, traversing the pandemic. I asked Michael Cunningham how this came to be the published novel, given it wasn't the book he thought he was writing. I was about halfway through another novel entirely when the pandemic the word arrived is a little mild for for the appearance mm. of the when the when when you know when the big nuke was dropped um there was really no way to incorporate the pandemic into the novel i was half finished with it would have felt incorporated it would have felt sort of like well here we are at this you know kind of awful party oh and and here comes godzilla you know, it just it just it wasn't going to work. And I didn't feel like I could set a contemporary novel in some world in which there was no pandemic. That just felt impossible. Um, it felt a little bit like setting a novel in London during World War II without mentioning the Blitz. So I put that novel on the shelf and started over. And here we and here we have this one. And here we are. Was it a contemporary novel? It wasn't the kind of thing where people could potentially or maybe would want to read it as a, you know, as a book that didn't deal with COVID as a form of escapism. You know, that is certainly an option. Um, And I believe in escapism. I love escapism. I don't really do escapism. All due respect to every writer who who delivers us from our daily trials, but that's just not that's just not me. So then the question became, how do you write a novel that acknowledges the pandemic without without it being a novel about the pandemic? Novels are about human beings. So how do you work that one out? So tell me about day. How did you arrive at the form and the structure of it? It is in three parts, and it takes place on a single day in April. Morning takes place during the year before the pandemic. Afternoon takes place at the height of the pandemic. And then evening takes place in what I will call the post-pandemic. That felt like the best way for me to tell a story about human beings who lived through the plague, most of them, without the book being dominated by the plague. I, I, I didn't really want to write a plague novel. I don't especially want to read a plague novel. I want to read about people and their relationships and how they survive being alive or, or, or sometimes fail to. Mm. And it is about people with a love triangle at the centre, mm. Isabel, Dan and Robbie. Yeah, I love a triangle. You do love a triangle. You love three. What is it about three? Here is the thing. I, I think three is a magical number. You look back in time. Um, 
the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three acts in a play, and okay, a couple of fun facts about three. If two separate storm systems are headed for land, they just move along side by side and nothing bad happens. If there is a third storm system, they collide and destroy your city. At the subatomic level, any atom with two electrons becomes is impossible to predict. Um, it's just infinitely various. So yeah, three. Yeah, three is a real, it's an enduring element of not just this novel, but of many of your previous works as well. And so with the love triangle at the centre, Isabel, Dan and Robbie, if they're storm systems, if we stick with your analogy, <laughs> which one is going uh, to destroy your city? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they are, all three of them wish they could destroy a city. If I'm interested in triangles, I'm also, it would seem, interested in unorthodox triangles and, you know, and, and sort of untraditional forms of love. Uh, I feel like many, many good and great writers have written extensively about the sort of traditional romances. In this book, it's a woman named Isabel who is married to a man named Dan, and the marriage isn't going especially well. And they are both, each in their own way, in love with Isabel's gay younger brother, Robbie. Nothing sexual. Actually, the, the, the sexual version is, is, is available, but it costs it costs extra. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's in, in, for these three people, it's about sort of idealization and incarnation. And both Isabel and Dan see in Robbie, each in their own way, the sort of ideal mate who is easy to idealize because he's so unavailable. Dan is straight. He's Isabel's brother. So they are all three kind of stuck in this emotional suspended animation and something has to change. We're very used to novels that very mm -hmm. much looked at the structure of <laughs> the nuclear family or of uh, going further back, you know, the Jane Austen type world, right. the mill on the floss, if you like, as well, <laughs> you know, certain ideas of, of how family is or how family isn't and how it works. And you seem to enjoy prodding that and teasing that and pulling that apart a bit. The untraditional family is, is becoming the new traditional family. How many families at this point in history, a single parent, um, same-sex parents, two parents with children from different marriages, the quote-unquote traditional family is, I think, alive and well, but I'm not so sure it's the majority anymore. So I feel like I'm poking and prodding, but I'm not sure if there's anything really substantial anymore to poke and prod at. So then does that mean that your characters in Day, I suppose particularly Isabel perhaps, is kind of haunted almost by the idea of family life and what she thinks family life should be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isabel signed on for what she thought she wanted, which was a fairly straightforward, if you will, traditional family, and is finding that that is actually not what she wants, which puts her in a position of great privilege, but also a tricky position. Who is going to be sympathetic to 
a woman with a loving husband and two kids and a good job and a nice place to live. But what if you just don't want that? When I was a kid, my mother would read fairy tales to me and we would get to the end where the often as not the prince took the princess, the young or the, the whoever up to the castle. And before I sort of got accustomed to the fact that that's where we left them, I would say, well, go on. And my mother would say, no, that's the end. And I said, no, but, but what if she doesn't like the castle? And, you know, this, she doesn't even know this prince. What if, what if it doesn't work out? You know, and my mother would essentially light a cigarette and say, well, that's the end. Um, <laughs> and so you could say I have devoted much of my adult life to taking us past happily ever after. But they all end with life going on. They all end with a sense of a future still to come. Mm. And that and that matters to me. You know, I do I do like to poke around at the at the depths and the underbelly, but I don't feel hopeless. I don't feel despair, and I don't really write about hopelessness or despair. You do write about time though. Yeah, I do. It feels you know, like a, a sort of a central character much more in your work rather than a passive inevitable well, given. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, frankly, there are, as a writer, you find that you have certain, you know, predilections that you don't really understand yourself. You just, you just see as, as there's one book and then another and then a third that you seem to be in, more interested in this than in that. And um, I just seem over and over to be interested in the effects of time sometimes a great deal of time, though I try to keep it as compressed as possible. Mm. So essentially the book, indeed, it happens, if you like, over three years, but because it's split into the three sections in the three different years, that's, yeah, your, that's yeah. your compression, right? And no, absolutely. When I finish a, a draft of a novel, I always go back over it and ask myself, how can this be shorter? You know, without being sketchy or elliptical, but where could I just shut up? The pandemic is just so entirely about time, from the suddenness of its arrival to the relative suddenness of its departure. I mean, who doesn't know where they were when the pandemic started and, and when they or when they got their first vaccine? Um, you know, the pandemic is about time. Did you find that time changed for you during the pandemic, that lockdown seemed to be at once incredibly long, incredibly short, and how we look back on it now in our memories because we were doing the same things, the same very small things day after day in our familiar surroundings, not going anywhere new, not meeting anyone new, that it seemed like a very short experience. It's like time is stretching and warping in a different way. Yes, yes. I suspect that literally millions of people had their own versions of that experience. Time felt incredibly long and also incredibly short. I was kind of stunned in the early days of the pandemic. I couldn't really write. I couldn't really read. And I actually have a pact with a friend of mine that as time passes, if we ever, one of us ever starts to wonder, well, you know, why why didn't i learn spanish then or you know why 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 didn't why didn't i learn how to play the piano and we are going to remind one another if we get to that point that lockdown had for many of us had this sort of 
I guess I'll say deer in the headlights quality, which is weird. But you know, there you are at home all day, and you would think you could use that to various forms of self-improvement. You take a macrame, but that wasn't the effect it had on me. And I know that wasn't the effect on a lot of people. You're listening to Saturday Morning on RNZ National. My guest is Michael Cunningham, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Hours. Uh, his new novel is Day. When I was reading Day, and I know, obviously, with your connection with Virginia Woolf, most explicitly in The Hours, I was reminded of To the Lighthouse, another one of her novels, and particularly the middle Mm -hmm. section called Time Passes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, hey, Virginia Woolf and I are lovers, okay? Um, I wondered if she was your patron saint. (laughs) <laughs> I think she was in a in in a way. Um, just quickly, I read Mrs. Dalloway in high school, and I didn't understand it. But it was the first great book I'd ever read, and I couldn't tell what was going on. But I was able to see the density and complexity of the language. And I hadn't really known you could do that with language, just words. They're, they're just so inert in and of themselves. But when you put them together the way she could, it's life. It's life there on the page. And yeah, one of the things I love about To the Lighthouse is that, you know, it, it's two sections that take place at slightly different times with that short connecting section called Time Passes. Um, And when Wolf was making her notes for the book, she drew it as sort of two squares with a little connection between, almost almost like like a barbell. And my God, I mean, that particular astonishing work of genius was first conceived sort of geometrically. And I love that about her. What is it about Virginia Woolf? Um, you know, I think for me, it is not only her mastery of language. She was like the Jimi Hendrix of language, but also her insistence on the notion that there are huge stories in the cosmos. There are also huge stories at the subatomic level, and they're in a certain sense just as big as the movements of stars and planets. You know, I'm a man, there's just no denying that. But I also love it that she insisted on the significance of women's lives. Um, never mind about George Eliot <laughs> and Jane Austen, but but Wolf kind of came along at a time when um, writing novels had become primarily the business of men who wrote about men's lives. And she essentially said through her work, no, I mean, sure, men, they're great um, in all kinds of ways, but but women, an outwardly ordinary woman like Clarissa Dalloway, like Mrs. Ramsay, are just as important in their wifely duties, um, just as significant as princes and pirates who happen to be men. And representation matters, which is something that comes through loud and clear in your work. I'm interested in some of the aspects of culture that are beginning to rear their heads at the moment. You know, we hear things about should actors be cast in certain roles, you know, if they're not Jewish or 
should Idris Elba be cast as James Bond because he's black? What about yeah. men writing women? <laughs> Can men write women? Well, should men write women? I suppose is the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going. I, I am of course going to say yes to that because I, I write about women and men. Um, I, I think it's actually a tricky question. Um, without an easy answer. On one hand, I think if we are only sort of permitted to write about people like us, we end up ultimately with this really balkanized body of literature, films, you name it. I mean, we have to imagine ourselves outside of ourselves. So on one hand, yes to a black James Bond. On the other hand, yes to, say, hiring a trans actor to play a trans character. If for no other reason than that, that person has a hard time getting work. I'm not being very satisfying with this answer, but I feel like things are being shaken up and they should be shaken up. And it can become extreme and slightly ridiculous, but a period of extremity and ridiculousness is probably what we need because, I mean, this was some time ago, but consider Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's playing a Chinese person. Mm. I mean, that's just, you know, you know, we don't want that. Yeah, that's the thing, though, isn't it? That the pendulum swings and I guess it has to reach its natural conclusion before it swings back. But think- that does lead us at the moment, I suppose, into all manner of culture wars around, as you mentioned, trans people, racism, anti-Semitism. Are we Mm -hmm. capable of having exploratory conversations through culture, through art about this now, or is it becoming toxic? You know, I think we are capable as a species. I think we are also in a bit of a toxic phase. I agree. I think genuine social or cultural change almost inevitably has to go through a period of extremes before it writes itself. Yeah, I mean, look at these three university presidents who are in huge trouble for suggesting that anti-Semitic or anti-Palestinian speech is cause for discipline. Um, These three people handled it really badly. and and were driven to say impossible things like oh well yeah you know the, the a call for the end of the Jewish state and the extermination of Jews depends on the context no it doesn't it feels like just the sort of latest expression of how very loaded a situation is at the moment don't say the wrong thing because you will never be forgiven for it social media doesn't help in large part oh, oh no I, I mean I I I think social media is on one hand fabulous and on the other hand hugely dangerous. Yeah, it's one thing to say the wrong thing to a room full of friends. It's another thing to say the quote-unquote wrong thing to a million people. Yeah, and we're all being so cautious um, because we know how bad it can be if we are incautious, if if we we make some rash statement that's going to get on somebody's on somebody's nerves and you know poof you can be in a sense techno sense sort of disappeared it sounds quite orwellian well i think it is a little orwellian
yeah, I think people's lives are destroyed by a wrong comment that gets onto social media. But I also love social media. Like, I love Instagram. I love being able to get these glimpses into the lives of uncountable strangers. I think like any powerful entity, it can go wrong, but I wouldn't want to be without social media. I want to see somebody in Des Moines, Iowa, um, or in Luxembourg who's just made a pie. I love that. Um, you just have to say we're living in a large era and largeness has its felicities and its drawbacks. Uh, even in day, there's a sort of an Instagram alter ego called uh, Wolf, obviously yeah. called Wolf. And Wolf is a real kind of pivotal character, but also one that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. It's something I've been thinking about for a while. One of the many things that's interesting to me about social media, especially Instagram, is the idea that you could actually invent a person and keep a sort of running Instagram account as that person. I, I suspect people are doing it already. And what Robbie in the novel does is, after his most recent romantic disappointment, constructed a person, an imaginary person made up of other people's photographs, but you know, specifically for Robbie, this imaginary person who's named Wolf is essentially a sort of, as Robbie would think of it, a slightly improved version of Robbie. He's not some superhero. Uh, he's just sort of Robbie with the lights turned up a little brighter and the volume turned up a little louder. So Robbie is essentially being accompanied in his life by what he thinks of as his sort of better twin who is a little smarter, a little more charismatic, just doing a little better. Aren't we all that on social media? Yeah, I think we are, we already we already are. We're all, we're all we're all ready um posting posting versions of ourselves, but I do feel like if we're posting our actual pictures um they do sort of intersect with our real lives in ways that are not quite the same as just totally inventing an online person. Yes. So you really did bake the pie that you put on Instagram. You just don't put the 35 <laughs> other pies that you'd, you know, that had failed or burnt. <laughs> I've never baked a pie, nor, nor would I, if I did, nor would I post it on Instagram. <laughs> um but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I figure that people's posts on Instagram are taken from their real lives. And you know, frankly, if, if you if you follow somebody on Instagram, it gets interesting when there are 20 images, when the details start to coalesce and you begin to get a certain sense of that person, inc including a sense of who that person wants you to think they are. And if you are of a perverse turn of mind like I am, you begin to sort of imagine who they really are under these sort of idealized images they're putting out. Yes. And speaking of Robbie in Day, in the second part where he develops a cough, so this is the, at the height of the pandemic, where Robbie develops a cough, mm -hmm. it kind of has a reminiscent edge, if you like, to... 
the AIDS crisis, which is also something you've previously written about. Yeah, I, as an adult, as a writer, I seem to have lived through two pandemics. And let's just say I'm hoping there's not a third for, for many reasons, not, not restricted to my, my reluctance to take on yet another one in fiction. But um, You do love yeah. three, though. It's your magic well, number. I, no, oh God, please, please, please. If, 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 if any, if, if any entity with leather wings and laser eyes heard me say that, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't in this particular case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this isn't only true of writers, but it's certainly true of writers. You play the hand you're dealt. Like I said, my particular hand, my poker hand, if you will, seems to contain two jokers. I would, whatever you want to, suicide jack, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I am surprised to find that a lot of my life as a writer has involved ways to try to grapple with a huge, horrific event while maintaining my, my focus on the human beings who reside within the event. Susie Ferguson with you this morning on Saturday morning here on RNZ National. My guest is Michael Cunningham, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Hours, of course made into a film as well. We're talking about his new novel, Day. How have you noticed attitudes changing towards, not only towards gay characters in novels, but also, I suppose, there's been a bit of a, almost a coming of age of people who lived through HIV and and AIDS at that, you know, in the height in in the 1980s and 90s and how that shaped the world. Yeah. And and they're now beginning to, to process and to put forward some observations on that 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 have that that closeness but also that distance yeah yeah you know my own sense is that my sexual identity is at most the fifth or so fact about me it is superseded by so much else and i feel like you know more so in some places than in others obviously you know, go ahead, be gay in Russia right now. But overall, I just feel like our sexuality is, sexual identity is more and more beside the point. I gave a reading in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is not a hotbed of liberalism. And when somebody asked about something about my life, I just told them about my husband, Kenny. Um, I teach at Yale, and they're inviting a fabulous queer Latina writer to come and give a talk, and they asked if I would do a Q&A with her, and I said, well, yeah, I think she's great, but do you really think a white guy is the best choice for this job? And they said, yeah, but you're gay, and I just said, well, that doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> you tick the diversity books. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do think 
in a setting like that where the Q&A person is going to be talking fairly intimately about the writer's life. It should be somebody whose life more resembles the writer's. Um, it doesn't mean I don't read this writer avidly. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm really getting at is it seems like, and this is a good thing, we're just moving quickly beyond the notion that white guys, gay, straight, or something else, are always the candidate for the job. I, I say that with full knowledge that I'm a white guy, but you know, maybe maybe it's the white guys who are most obliged to bring it up. Mm. I wonder what your observations are around some of the book bans that have been going on in U.S. schools. Oh, I, I, um, it's terrible and terrifying, and not in any way related to context or setting it is um fascism so something we are currently really worried about in the states and you know i'm as appalled as anybody in america or anywhere at the sort of rightward turn things are taking here from move to ban books to what seems at the moment like the real possibility that trump might be re-elected and that scares the hell out of me. Why specifically what... does that scare the hell out of you? Oh, um, the increasing dominance of the right wing here with everything that implies about repression and censorship, about America being intended really essentially for one kind of person and nobody else. And you know, the power is growing. I would have been terrified of Mussolini, too, if I had been in Italy at the time. I found it interesting um, when you were talking about your first book, Golden, mm -hmm. Golden States. You joked oh, that you'd, it, only, it only sold seven or eight copies. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe more now, to be fair. But you carried on writing. But still you say you have a gnawing suspicion that your books are boring. Oh, yeah. So oh, how yeah. do you silence that inner critic? Yeah, that came up in a conversation with a journalist from the New York Times um, who sort of asked me to name my my most prominent demon, and that's that's what came to mind. But I meant it as something I use, and I hope to the benefit of my work. If you are appropriately aware of not boring the reader, you're all the more likely to write unboring books. As a reader, I sometimes feel, you know, don't come around here with that 800-page tome unless it really needs to be 800 pages long. So it wasn't intended to be as self-abnicating as it, as it may have sounded. Try to think about the fact that people are busy. People have things to do. Don't rattle on and on. Give people, <laughs> give people the real stuff. Do you feel that every time you bring out a new book or a new collection of short stories that your work is mm. always being compared to the hours. What is the pressure there to yeah. live up to it? And I can't deny it. Often when somebody says they're fans of my work, they mean the hours. And, you know, it's easy to feel indignant about that. And I'm certainly not going to write the hours too. But I always sort of stop myself and remind myself that people are still talking about that book 25 years later. How many novels have that kind of life in the world? So I keep my mouth shut. 
and just think about the next book and the book after that. Because it would be a ter- it would be a real mistake to be a slave to your hit book. Consider yourself lucky to have had a hit book and and let it go and move on. So what about that book before day that you didn't write or you didn't finish? Yeah. Will it know, see the light we'll, of day? We'll have to I'm taking a wait and see attitude on that one. I'm gonna pick it up again soon and I might go back to it and you know, it might simply have outlived itself. You know, for me, a novel has a certain shelf life. It's a very long shelf life. Um a novel a novel lasts longer than certainly any preservative laden thing you could get at the supermarket, but finally over enough time it can cease to be the novel you wanted to write and i don't know about this one um i might go back to it and i might just let it go one of the things about doing what i do is you really have to be willing and able to let things go if it's lost its way if you've lost your way with it you can't it's not an economical proposition by else. If I owe about a third of my income to the government in taxes, I owe at least a third of my writing time to the trash can. And that is Michael Cunningham, of course, uh, author of Pulitzer Prize winning novel The Hours. His new book, Day, uh, is out now, or if not now, very shortly. Um, Michael Cunningham there speaking to us from New York.